Hello, and welcome to the Quest Church San Diego Sermon Podcast. Our church has a passion to reach people who are far from God, teach them to follow Jesus, and launch them out to serve God in the world. If you're in the San Diego area, we'd love for you to join us for a service. Please visit questsd.com to learn more about us, find out service times, and explore our ministries. If you have any questions, send us an email at info at questsd.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's message. We're going to jump into our Bible study this morning. Let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. There's a lot to get to, so we're going to jump right into it. It is a continuation of our series that we have been going through the Gospel of Mark. And if you're new to the church, uh, what we do on Sunday morning is uh, read through the Scriptures, study it. And uh, chapter and verse, for the most part, we are expositorily teaching through the Bible. And a couple of um, resources that are available for you is, one, a free Mark journal that's available in the bookstore. It has the entire text of the Gospel of Mark as well as lined paper on the side so you can jot down and keep notes. But you can also scan the QR codes on the posters at the exit doors, and that'll bring up the sermon notes And uh, you can see that digitally, or you can print them out, or you can just kind of follow along, because some of the stuff that we have up on the screen, we want you to understand the Scriptures contextually. What's the Bible teaching in the context of the chapter and of the verse? But we also want to apply that personally and practically to our lives. And so we try to do that every single week. And so the title of the message today is Religious Entrapment, because as we have transitioned into Jesus last week, he's in the middle of, of his last week on earth. And now he's being confronted by the religious rulers, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the, um, the Sadducees. And so uh, Jesus has been confronting these religious leaders throughout his ministry, but now they are, have intensified their tactics, and they're trying to trick, trap, and test Jesus. And so he's going to have this uh, dialogue and interaction with them. So um, the point that we want to remember today is that uh, Jesus cannot be beat with religious deceit. Now, I just want to throw a little rhyme in there for you, just so you can remember it. But uh, Jesus cannot be beat through religious deceit. And the religious deceit is coming from the religious leaders. They're trying to trick him. But Jesus is going to deal with these issues straight up. And just a very simple outline for us as we read through this chapter and study it. First is, Jesus is going to give an illustration through a parable that he would be rejected by Israel. Secondly, we're going to see uh, Jesus confronted by these specific requests, one dealing with paying our taxes, the other dealing with the resurrection, and, uh, and then the other final one dealing with what's the greatest commandment, so religious traditions. And then thirdly, we're going to see Jesus condemn the religious hypocrisy of these elite leaders. And then lastly, we're going to see Jesus recognize a donation that a poor widow brings to the treasury. It's basically her tithes and her offerings. And Jesus is going to observe and make comments about how we should give to the Lord. So Jesus recognizes a donation from a poor widow. So a lot to get to. Jumping into Mark chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. Everyone say vineyard. This is key to understanding this parable. And he dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, everyone say vine dresser. So these two are important. Now, at vintage time, he sent 
a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again he sent them another servant and at him, and they threw and they threw stones at him, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another to him, and they killed him, and many others, beating and some they killed. And therefore, still having one son, now everyone say son, his beloved, his beloved son, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and his inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on Jesus. Now, that is not a nice thing to do here in ac- according to these scriptures. It's not like, oh, well, let's give him a hug. Well, let's give him a back massage. No, this was to seize him and to beat him and to imprison him. They sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew that they had spoke, Jesus had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went their way. So we'll just pause here as we look at this illustration, this parable that Jesus illustrates. Basically, the rejection that would come by Israel against the Messiah. And there's a couple things that we need to remember here is that in the Old Testament, there are pictures and terms used to describe the people of Israel. And one of those was a vineyard as well as the vine dressers being a picture and a term used to describe Israel's leaders. And so this vineyard picture in the Old Testament is a picture of God's people as a whole, but also as Israel's rulers. So Jesus, now we know actually that Jesus was talking about Israel and these religious leaders because at the end of the parable, we see that they knew that Jesus was talking about them. And so as they're taking this personally, they are recognizing that this parable is talking about how they have rejected, quote, the Messiah. And we know that in accordance with the Old Testament because there was many messengers or, quote, prophets that God sent to Israel. There was prophets in the Old Testament. There were judges that God sent to the uh, people of Israel in the Old Testament. And many of those prophets they persecuted. Many of those prophets they put in prison. Many of those prophets they even killed. And even up to John the Baptist in the New Testament, we see that there was a continual rejection of the messages as well as the messengers that God was sending to the people of Israel so that they would humble themselves, that they would soften their hearts, so they would respond to God, but they didn't want to hear the message of God through the messengers. And so the parable is describing how even though God's great love was sent to the people of Israel, uh, they were rejecting him over and over again until God sent his one and only begotten son. Now that reminds me of one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so here in this parable, Jesus is illustrating for us that he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son. He's the one who has been sent, the beloved of God sent. And what happens to this son? 
He is rejected, he is betrayed, and he is killed. Now, up until this point, we have seen that Jesus has predicted his death, burial, and resurrection at the hands of the religious rulers in Jerusalem, that he would be denied, killed in Jerusalem. And so we know that in the previous chapter, as the disciples were watching Jesus go into Jerusalem, it was very powerful because Jesus knew he was going to his death. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to suffer in Jerusalem, but he willingly laid down his life for you and I, going into really the lion's den, so to speak, and at the hands of these Pharisees and scribes. And so we see that Jesus is rejected. And actually, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, which is an important psalm when you look at the promises and the prophecies of the Messiah. It was quoted twice in the previous chapter, and it's quoted here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, Jesus being the cornerstone of the church, Jesus being the one who was rejected. And so David, as most scholars attribute Psalm 118 to David in the Old Testament, that David predicts Israel's rejection and murder of God's Son. Now notice what happens here, though. Jesus says in this parable that the Son is the final messenger, that Jesus is God's ultimatum to planet Earth. And if we reject Jesus, we have refused all hope in redemption, in forgiveness, in reconciliation with God. And so in the sending of Jesus as God's only begotten Son, we see a perfect picture of God's love for you and I. The Bible says that God demonstrated his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we reject him, he still went to the cross. Even though he suffered upon the cross, that suffering was because of his great love for you and I. So the illustration, I guess, is an important uh, reminder for us to recognize that Jesus is the one that God wants us to hear. He's the one that uh, God wants us to recognize and understand and follow. And uh, it would be very tragic for us to ever reject the, the, the one from heaven, the one who was sent, Jesus Christ, because there's no other messenger reserved in heaven except for Jesus Christ. And as he has come, he has brought this great hope for us. And Jesus, in this parable, illustrates the rejection of Israel. But I wonder if it could possibly also illustrate the rejection of the hardness of heart, even in our lives, potentially, or in our current culture and world as well. The people are rejecting Jesus, but Jesus is saying, accept and believe. I am the one who was sent. Don't reject anymore. So, here is this illustration. But now the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they're going to take issue with Jesus on some religious as well as practical matters. Look at verse 13. And then they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Everyone say catch. Yeah, so this is a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Notice how they talk like politicians these days, I guess. I don't know. Very eloquent with their words. They're just buttering Jesus up. They're really just softening him up. And then comes the blow, right? 
They are trying to flatter Jesus with their words in order to flatten him with some sort of government control and power because really they're, they're going to ask him about taxes. So they say, you're so good, you're so wonderful. And Jesus knows the motive of their heart. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Oh boy, don't go there, Sherwood. Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about taxes and government, especially after a heated, uh, you know, political season. But Jesus goes there and he takes issue here with this question. And they say, shall we pay these taxes or shall we not pay? But Jesus says, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, which was a common coin in the, in, at the time, that I may see it. And they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now we're just going to pause there, because Jesus is addressing, and he's basically being confronted by these requests from the spiritual leaders. We know that they are trying to trap him, to trick him, and to test him. And they bring this issue about paying taxes, because if they can get Jesus to say that you don't pay taxes, then the Roman authorities can come and just... Eliminate the threat of Jesus' authority and ministry and power. And Jesus wasn't having any of it. Remember, he can't be beat by this type of deceit. And so he takes issue with, one, the physical. And that physical is the coin. And he says, bring me a coin. And he looks at the image. And it's just very similar to what we have even today. You look at a coin today and you have an image of some American leader But you also have inscriptions, in God we trust, or out of one many, and these sort of things that are on the coins. And Jesus says, whose image, whose inscription is Caesar's? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, it's interesting the word, when you look at this word render, it literally means to pay a bill, to settle a debt, or to pay something that is owned. And as citizens of government, now the Bible says that that the leaders who are in authority over us, God institutes those And as we pray and as we vote, then we are praying and voting biblical values if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're hoping that those who are in authority and those who get elected are going to institute or pass laws that are in accordance with biblical values and truths. It's not always the case, as we know, but that's what we pray for and that's what we hope. We participate in the process, but we also participate in the financial process as we would render those things, those expenses, unto the government in order to take care of things, in order to pass laws, in order to ensure everything is happening. Now, that's what Jesus says here. Pay those things. Render those bills. Settle those debts. But he also talks in a spiritual way. And he says, if there is an image of Caesar and an inscription on a physical coin, there is also an image and an inscription on the immaterial soul of every single person. And that's all the way back in the book of Genesis where the Bible says that every human being has been made in the image of God. That every person bears the image of God. And the DNA that we have is inscripted upon our makeup that God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. That if the image of God is upon the soul of the human uh, being, then we belong to God. Then we render to God our hearts. We render to God our souls. In fact, he's going to 
go on to talk about what is the greatest commandment, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if the image of God is imprinted on the immaterial soul of every single person, then what Jesus is saying in bringing these realities together is that we give our expenses to government, but we give our existence to God. We're faithful to meet our obligations in the physical expenses of life, but we're also faithful to render our existence to God because it belongs to him, to render that, to give to him. Now, God loves you with an everlasting love, and he desires to have a relationship with you. And if you, as we bear his image, then our response is to surrender and give that to him. So here we have an encouragement, not only to participate in the process of government and the obligations that we have in life, but also to participate in the spiritual surrendering of our souls and lives to a God who has imprinted his image upon our lives. So secondly, we see the Sadducees here. Then some Sadducees who say there is, verse 18, no resurrection came to him and they asked him saying, now we that's actually why they are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection right there. So they're very sad, you see. That's a very bad joke. That's a pastor joke right there. They're sad, you see. They don't believe in the resurrection. Why wouldn't you want to believe in the resurrection? Listen, if you look at the Bible, if you remove the resurrection, the entire plan of salvation completely crumbles because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it proves Jesus is who he says he is, but it also proves that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to meet the righteous judgment of God as well as the forgiveness of human sin. Right there in the resurrection. It's the punctuation point of the cross. And so these Sadducees come, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, he's quoting Moses here. Now, therefore, there were seven brothers, and the first took the wife, and the dying left no offspring, so on and so forth. He's talking about a, a crazy scenario here about five brothers uh, having the same wife and meeting this religious obligation. And then verse 23, therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven have had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Everyone say mistaken. This is uh, very serious because uh, they were the ones to know the scriptures. Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And the Bible says to know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not to know the knowledge of scripture, but to allow the truth of scripture to penetrate our hearts and to change us and to experience the power of God in our lives. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So Jesus gives them a quick lesson and Bible study on Moses' scriptures and verses in the Old Testament. And here he says that you are mistaken. And basically, these Sadducees come up with a ridiculous hypothetical in order to ridicule the supernatural. They're ridiculing the very supernatural, real truth of what the Bible teaches in using this crazy 
ridiculous hypothetical in order to trick Jesus in his teaching. But Jesus says you're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures or understand the power of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's actually doing three things, I believe, in these verses. One, he is verifying that there is a difference between the celestial life and the terrestrial life. There's a difference between life on planet Earth in the physical body and life in a celestial way. He's also validating that there are angelic beings. He actually calls them angels. So Jesus is validating that there are angelic created beings. And then lastly, I believe that Jesus is vindicating the reality of the resurrection. This is something that not only the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees have been rejecting Jesus, rejecting truth. We know that their hearts are hardened against God. They're holding on to their power and their authority because um, Jesus is coming to threaten their power and authority, and they're not willing to change. So Jesus takes issue with them, and he reveals the truth and intent of their hearts. And then we also see, notice the scribes come in verse 28. And then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Everyone say love. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. And so Jesus is asked about this question of which is the greatest commandments. Now it's interesting, if you go back in the Old Testament, you see Moses, who spent 40 days with God on Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments inscribed on stone and brought down to the people of Israel. It really began with these Ten Commandments. And in dealing with the, the vertical relationship that we have with God, there shall be no other gods before me, but also the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. And so in these Ten Commandments, over time, what happened? So many other commandments, so many other traditions, so many other rules and regulations were developed by the religious leaders. And Jesus also acknowledged that these religious leaders not only enforced these rules upon other people, but they were unwilling to apply them to themselves. And so Jesus is going to go on and at the end of this chapter condemn their religious hypocrisy because they are very prideful, but they're also very deceitful. And Jesus boils all of these commandments down to this one, but then also he adds. He adds this second one because they're connected. And God is a God of relationship, and he desires our relationship to be intact, intact through what Jesus Christ has done for us. But he also desires that our relationships with other people would be intact as well. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now that's all consuming. That's everything. That means, God, you have all of me. All of who I am, I give and surrender to you. And uh, this word love is very important because Jesus says that other people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have towards one another. The Bible says God is love and that God demonstrated this love. And this love is so vital and so important as a quality and characteristic, not only of God, but also of the people of God. And Jesus is saying, boil it all down, make it very simple. Oftentimes I complicate things. Oftentimes I make things 
too difficult. And Jesus here is a great reminder of simplifying the love that God has for us and the love that we give towards other people. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, if there is an authentic and genuine relationship with God, then that is going to be manifest in a compassion and sincerity for other people. It flows in and through Loving our neighbor. You might be thinking, well, who is my neighbor? Well, traditionally, we would think that this word neighbor means the person who is living in the house next to us or in the house across the street. But Jesus was also asked this question, well, who is my neighbor? Well, our neighbors are those who are all around us. Our neighbor are those are potentially even those who mistreat us, those who potentially are our enemies. And Jesus says, you should pray. You should love those who mistreat you or persecute you. If you do that in my name, you are going to love them. And so Jesus says to love other people is the greatest commandment. It is the greatest expression of the love that God pours into our hearts. So Jesus here presents the main principle of the commandments of God in the Old Testament. He's not so much promoting trivial practices as the Pharisees and the scribes. They wanted these traditions and practices. But Jesus is presenting the principle, the principle of love that governs the heart of the follower of Jesus as well as those who are loving compassionately other people. So notice the entrapment that is trying to take place here with Jesus. The trap, the trick, to test him in these things, and he addresses them. And in verse 35, the story continues, then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is it then that he is his son. And the common people heard him gladly. And then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. Well, what does that mean? Well, they like to be seen like, ooh, that person. They like to stand out from the crowd. They have their robe on or their certain shirt or their certain collar or whatever it is in order to be seen like that person is something very important. And so they have the long robes, or they love the greetings in the marketplaces. Well, what does that mean? Well, they like the titles. They like the, um, to be called someone special. And uh, they have the pastor, or the bishop, or the deacon, or the apostle, or the evangelist, or whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying that those titles are, are, are bad, or, or evil, or, or not good. Uh, but if somebody is pursuing those titles, in order to, as Jesus is saying, to look more important to draw the attention to themselves. And Jesus says, this is pride and this is arrogance. And they love the best seats in the synagogues. Why? Because they can be seen by other people. They love the best places at the feasts. But notice what they do. They devour widows' houses. They take from them. They rob them. They steal from them in order to build their own Houses that build their own lives and for a pretense make long prayers in order to sound holy and spiritual. These will receive a greater condemnation. Now, Jesus also says there'll be a greater judgment and condemnation to those who teach. And uh, so it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a humbling privilege for those who have positions of influence in order to use that platform as a way to not promote themselves but to promote Jesus Christ, 
to point people to Jesus. So Jesus condemns their religious hypocrisy. And basically, strict religious obstacles are a serious offense to God. And Jesus takes these head on. But he deals with a couple of things. One is the pride as well as the deceit. The pride is they love the best positions. They love to be seen. And I have found over 25 years of pastoral ministry that there are some people that like to be up front. There are some people that just like to be seen. And I have found, as we have been studying, as well as is the main theme of the Gospel of Mark that we have been looking at, is that Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, learn to be a servant of all. I found it very hard that you can't hold a mic if you aren't already clutching a broom. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, what I mean is that many people want to have the microphone. And if you have the microphone, you're an important person. You gotta li- you're listening to them. And they want... They want the position. They want the spotlight. But many people want to hold on to the microphone, but they're unwilling to clutch the broom. They're unwilling to serve. They're unwilling to sweep. They're unwilling to do the small, little, faithful things of a servant of God, not for anyone to see, but what's important is that Jesus has modeled this for us. In just a couple of days, he's going to spend his time with his disciples and wash the disciples' feet. And he will say, I was one who was among you as one who served. We can always pick out somebody who's fake and phony because they are usually never around. They're not serving. They're not helping. But they sound really good. They have the right uh, responses. They know all the Bible verses, but they're not a servant at heart. And Jesus says, these spiritual leaders, they were very hypocritical because they look good on the outside but they were actually just full of hypocrisy on the inside. Not only hypocrisy, they were also deceitful, devouring widows. The Bible says, if you want to have pure and undefiled religion, take care of the widows, love them and minister to them and provide for them. And these were the most vulnerable. And notice that the religious leaders were abusing and taking advantage of widows. And then Jesus steps back and he watches a poor widow come and give her gift and give her offering. And say, this woman has given more than all of these other religious leaders have ever given. Because Jesus says that some people, dare I say even Christians, or increase it one more level, some religious leaders... They look good outwardly. They're attractive outwardly, but they're appalling inwardly. And that is something that Jesus takes great offense to. And he desires that we would humble ourselves as well as follow the model of Jesus in service and in sacrifice. So in closing here, we have Jesus' observation of this widow. And I think that there's a couple of takeaways for us. Verse 41, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Now, I just find it interesting that Jesus is observing and watching. So we have positioned key elders and deacons in our church to watch the baskets. No, just kidding. That's just a joke. Come on now. Loosen up here. Um, and, uh, but, but Jesus is watching. Jesus sees He's seeing those who give. And uh, what's cool about that is uh, we stopped passing baskets uh, or, you know, little baskets through the aisles. And we just put, you know, boxes in the back as well as, you know, giving online as, as well. And uh, what's interesting when we did that is uh, giving and tithing increased. 
And it's not that, it's not that we are, are looking and, um, and evaluating. No, the Bible says that generosity is, an, is a personal expression that you pray about and you give to the Lord. And it's between you and the Lord. But notice how he says that the rich gave much. And that's probably pretty true. I mean, they have, you know, more to give. And yet, Jesus says here, Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites. It's less than pennies. And uh, which makes a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So we're just going to stop there for today, and uh, the story is going to pick up next week in looking at end times prophecy. So you don't want to miss out next week, because we're going to look at the signs of the end of the time. And uh, so Jesus here in these closing verses recognizes a donation from a widow. There is much and there is little. But as Jesus teaches his disciples in these verses, when it comes to generosity and giving to the Lord, it's not about how much you and I give, but how we give. And uh, how we give is determined upon our trust and our dependency upon God. And so what this poor widow teaches us in her poverty that giving your all to Jesus means nothing is off limits to him. We are opening. Didn't we just not read that Jesus said to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And maybe we can throw in our bank account as well. To love him means that there is nothing off limits. Sometimes I think, well, it's pretty tight this month. Lord, I don't know about that. But if we're giving God our first and we're saying, God, whatever you have, that is a life of trust and dependency upon him. It's also a life of recognizing that everything that we have in life comes from him. He is a good father who gives good gifts to us. He's provided for all of our needs. And so nothing is off limits. No, I'm, I'm going to hold this back, God, because I, I, I don't think I can make it. Well, you and I can give much to Jesus, even with little resources. And as we determine that, as we pray and as we seek the Lord, then he gives that. He's watching. He's the one that sees. He's the, he's the good shepherd. He's, um, he's the senior pastor of Quest Church. And he has been providing for his body. And he is also inviting you and I to participate in the joy of uh, giving, not only in serving to him, but also giving in releasing those things and trusting him with all of our resources. So in recap, as our worship team comes on up and leads us in a closing song, we're following through Jesus' last week on earth. He's taken time to address some of the traps that the Pharisees are coming against him. He gives us an illustration of rejecting Jesus. And he gives us a warning not to reject God's messenger, his son. And Jesus has been sent for you and I so that we could receive hope, forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation. But we're also encouraged in this chapter that you have the image of God on your life, that he wants to hold you, he wants to use you, he wants to bless you, he wants to fill you. And that we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there is also a warning to see that there would be no hypocrisy in our lives. Now, what do we do with that? Well, we go, go to the Lord. 
Maybe as we sing this song, there's an opportunity for you to do just that in the quietness of your own heart, to confess those things to God, to acknowledge some of those things that you need some work on. And I know we can go through this entire room and we're not all going to stand up and confess those things, but you can to the Lord because he loves you. God did not send his son into this world to condemn you, but that through him the world might be saved. You and I could easily look to the left and look to the right and say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. And we need a Savior. And that Savior has come. And his name is Jesus. And if you surrender your life and confess your sin, he will come into you and forgive you of all of your sin. And he will set you free and redeem you in a right relationship with God. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus Christ. We do want to receive the invitation of God through your son. And if you have not done that yet, let me encourage you to do that in the quietness of your own heart. The Bible says if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not a matter of putting up on a list and saying, well, that sin is worse and that sin is a little less. And No, it has nothing to do with that. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you acknowledge where you have fallen short, then God will come in and cleanse you and wash you and forgive you. We're also encouraged in this chapter to see this genuine love and care and compassion for others. May we follow you and love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us for the Quest Church San Diego Sermon Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions about the Bible, need prayer, or recently made a commitment to follow Jesus, we'd love to hear from you. Please visit questsd.com to get connected. You can also send us an email at info at to let us know how God is using these messages to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Until next time, we pray you have a blessed week.